so yeah, let me just tell you a little bit about myself and about the podcast, and then we can jump on in. I'm a postdoc at the University of Washington, okay. and I started this podcast as a science outreach project uh, about two years ago while I was still in grad school, and I've just been loving it ever since. So it's been a really great way to connect and contribute back to the Star Trek community because I've been a Star Trek fan all my life. And yeah, I'm just it's it's really cool to see somebody else who has the same sort of passion about blending science and Star Trek. Um, That's what I was thinking about you as well. <laughs> That's awesome. This is Mike Wall, and you're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. My special guest today is Dr. Mohammed Noor, professor of biology at Duke University and the author of the book, Live Long and Evolve, what Star Trek can teach us about evolution, genetics, and life on other worlds. I first learned about Dr. Knorr and his book from a StarTrek.com article that detailed another wonderful thing of his, a freshman seminar class that he runs at Duke called Genetics, Evolution, Star Trek. It's a class that teaches biological concepts using examples from Star Trek, and where the final project is to write a Star Trek script using real biological concepts. The StarTrek.com article that describes his class, which I've linked in the show notes, is called Meet the College Professor Teaching Trek to Millennials. And when I shared that article on all my social media platforms, one of my best friends commented, when I read the headline, I thought it was going to be about you. Alas, I'm not a college professor, but I knew that I absolutely had to get in touch with the one who was literally teaching a Science of Star Trek course at the university level. So, I wrote to Dr. Knorr on Twitter, bought his book, and a few weeks later, opened a subspace channel to Durham, North Carolina. Let's start at the beginning. So how did you get into science, and how did you get into Star Trek, and where did those stories intertwine? Ah, that's a great question. So, I, I mean, I guess science is probably the easiest ones. I always liked science. My parents were both trained as engineers. They always, you know, instilled in me a passion for science. I was really interested in, in life science all the time, too. Even as a kid, I used to, you know, collect different kinds of bugs and see what, like, what would happen if I freeze it for a little while and bring it out. And I just, I'd love to experiment with uh, animals and, and interact with animals and, and a little bit with plants and stuff as well. So I was, I was always kind of interested in biology, but in a very sort of natural history way, not necessarily in a hypothesis testing framework like we do in pursuing our PhDs. Star Trek also started really early. I, I, I was exposed to it probably the first time around age seven or eight, something like that. I saw my first episode and I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And, and I liked how it was sort of, again, question-centered and, you know, there are these big picture things that they're exploring and concepts. I like that it wasn't just bam, 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 shoot, 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 like a lot of science fiction is even now, but uh, also at the time. So I got into that fairly early, and I stayed through despite the the first Star Trek movie. <laughs> <laughs> 
but Wrath of Khan definitely reignited it. And then, of course, when, you know, the the, the 90s were definitely a, a heyday of Star Trek with, you know, the next generation being uh, continuing on and, and also getting better after the first two seasons. <laughs> Deep Space Nine, Voyager, all this. Uh, you know, basically, I watched all those as they aired. I'm, I'm a little bit too young to watch the original series when it aired. I, I wasn't born when that was on the air. But, you know, I was fairly young when I was watching it as a kid. So the, those... Those were two mostly separate parts of my life. Though I do remember actually making the comment back in college that if I was to sort of dream job something, it would be great to be like a science advisor for Star Trek or something like that. But never pursued that one, unfortunately. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe fortunately, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's still time. Maybe, uh, you know, Discovery will come calling or, uh, you know, the new Picard show. Yeah, it could happen. <laughs> um I guess they really came together just in within the past five years or so. I went to my first convention my, at my daughter's behest in 2014, and that was Dragon Con. And going there, I saw that several professors were also talking about the science behind depictions in Star Trek. One of them was actually my colleague here at Duke University. His name is Professor Eric Spana. And he gave a series of talks, one of them on the genetics of wizarding and Harry Potter, another one on like um, Mass Effect and biology is depicted in Mass Effect, things like that. So I thought, hey, this is pretty cool. At that same convention, I met Garrett Wong. <laughs> I had actually tweeted to him before the convention saying, hey, are you coming to this? You know, you're one of my son's favorite characters in Voyager. It'd be great to meet you in person. He wrote back he was. And in fact, he actually was the person running the Trek track at Dragon Con. I didn't know that at the time. So I interacted with him a little bit there. I interacted with him a little bit then after the convention, too. And we sort of kept in touch. So I broached the idea with him. I think around 2015 or so in the fall saying, Hey, would it be okay if I was to give a talk in the Trek track at dragon con about depictions of evolution in star Trek? And he said, sure, we're always looking for new content. We'd like to have a good scientific basis for it. Sure. We, we definitely be up for that. So I applied then as a, a professional attendee for dragon con in 2016. And that really started the snowball. <laughs> so it's amazing. Yeah. I give, I wow. give more talks after that and that spurred the idea of hey why don't i write a book on this topic and my publisher this princeton university press published the book and then from there like well now i've written a book why don't i do a class with this <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing yeah just snowballing out of that uh chance interaction i guess it was um precipitated through twitter and then um yep. through conventions it reminds me of how science conferences are a really productive place for making connections and uh, yep. relations with other labs and yep. groups that's good advice that's a, there for people at both conferences and conventions it's like interact with people don't don't do the freshman dorm thing of everybody sort of huddling together with people you know and walking from place to place mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah good, networking is important networking is huge all right. So you're a professor of biology at Duke University, and yep. your course that you teach is called Genetics, Evolution, and Star Trek, or the course that you teach that we're going to be talking about today. Yes. I'm yep. sure you teach multiple courses. Yes, um, definitely others too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so tell me about creating this Genetics, Evolution, Star Trek course, and like, what was the reception from the faculty when you proposed it to them? That was interesting. So within my department, I think people were mostly you know, either silent or enthusiastic. <laughs> but, but talking more broadly, there were definitely some people who I talked to who were not from my department who definitely, you know, raised their eyebrows like, really, seriously, are you going to actually do that? And I kept emphasizing to them that the class, just like the book that I wrote, it's not about learning about Star Trek. It really is about teaching these concepts in genetics and evolution, but trying to make it in a way that's more fun and engaging and things like that. 
Now, there's an issue with doing this for students who right now are, say, 18. This was aimed at first-year students. Um, there's an issue with doing that with them in that most of them have not seen a lot of Star Trek because, you know, what's been on? I mean, Discovery's on right now, but the whole problem with showing it on CBS All Access means a lot of people haven't seen it, whereas if it had been shown within the U.S. on Netflix, maybe many more would have. So most of them, if they'd seen any Star Trek, most of what they had seen was the J.J. Abrams reboot movies. Right. And, and there's not a lot of biology there. I mean, there's not a lot with which to work there. I mean, they're fun. You know, they're, they're engaging. I, I like them, but there wasn't a whole lot of material there. So I was very nervous what the students would perceive, you know, in watching some of these 90s shows or even some of the 60s shows. You know, are they going to like it? So most of the students in the class, had, like I said, had they'd either seen none or just seen the J.J. Abrams trek. There are a couple who'd seen maybe with their parents or in one case with their grandparents. That didn't make me feel old at all. <laughs> Watch the original series Star Trek. <laughs> but most of them didn't know much Star Trek. So there was a little bit of sort of a, like, let me lay this out to people. So what we did in class, we actually would watch either parts or occasionally even whole episodes of Star Trek. And that way, then they have the framework so we can talk about it. It's not just diving in, assuming they've seen this material. And I was nervous whether they would be receptive to that. But actually, as of yesterday, I just got the course evaluations for the class. And they seemed very positive about it. They said they really found it an engaging way of learning the material. Judging by their performance on the test, the tests are very similar to tests I gave in my intro bio class. Very similar in context, very similar in depth and substance. And they did very well with it. So I, I consider it, at least for now, a success. That's wonderful. And I can tell you're a professor because you anticipated my next two questions, which were, <laughs> are the students mostly Trekkies? And uh, how, how does a normal day in class go? Are you w watching Star Trek and discussing it? Or is it mostly you uh, lecturing? And, and it seems like it was a blend of, of all of yep. those different things. Absolutely. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of activities, too, where we'd, I'd talk a little bit. We'd watch the Trek episode. We'd have a short discussion, and maybe on the next day I'd give them a sheet of problems, and, and you know they'd work then together in small groups on the problems, look things up on the internet, discuss, and then we discuss them as a class as a whole. And we had the standard test. The, the best part though was um, the final projects. This was something actually I, I had this on the syllabus, and I'll tell you when I went into the class, I had no idea what the final project was. <laughs> Even up to the point where I was going to assign a class, I was still thinking like I don't really know what the final project should be. So I just brought it to the class and said. What do you all propose? You know, what are some ideas? And a lot of good ideas came up. So I told them, well, I'll tell you what, why don't each of you just do what you, like, write, write for me by next week, uh, you know, a one paragraph proposal of what you want to do for your final project. So several people said, I want to film a, a clip from a Star Trek episode that has really good science and shows several of the concepts that we discussed in class. And I don't know if you saw in that StarTrek.com uh uh, article they actually had one of those filmed clips in there and it was really 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 well done i was very impressed there were a couple who had done a rap about some of the material mm -hmm. those were great some of them <laughs> other. i mean it was it was it was nice because the, it allowed them to use their own creativity in showing what they'd learned rather than me saying you know write a term paper on blah 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 which you know nobody loves that <laughs> yeah exactly yeah I, I love it when there are those creative options to sort of make the material your own and i feel like yeah. people retain the information a lot better as opposed to when they just have to regurgitate facts on a sheet of exactly. paper exactly exactly yeah. exactly and so one of the people who actually did a rap it was it, it they did it accompanied by an amazing video so what i've encouraged that particular person to do is actually to submit it to the professional society conference that i go to they have a film festival in there and they have a competition i said yours is as good as these ones in there so i think as last i've heard she is submitting it for that and that professional conference is actually at the end of june in 2019 so it'll be very interesting to see if she actually wins a prize from doing this as a class assignment as well it could be a thousand dollars for her <laughs> that's fantastic 
So I saw that you also had some special guests in your class too, yep. uh, including Garrett Wong, who played Ensign Kim on Star Trek Voyager, and Andre Bormanis, who science advised numerous Star Trek shows. Yeah. So how did you swing that? I mean, you already told me how you met uh, Garrett, but yep. Andre, and then also what did, what did they contribute to the learning experience in your class? That's a great question. So with Andre, he didn't actually come in person to the class, though I'm definitely considering trying to bring him in the future, but we Skyped with him. I met him at the Northeast Trek Con back in October up in Albany. And super nice guy, super eloquent. I thought, wow, this would be a great person to, to talk to the class on the first day of class. So that's actually what we did. I went over sort of the basics of the format for the class, and I thought, well, here's somebody who really has taken his knowledge of science and tried to apply it to science fiction. He's you know given these sort of problems to solve you know, by the writers every week and say, you know, here, figure out a way to science this out. This would be a great way as we're then discussing the concepts to see like what had happened behind the scenes. So that's exactly what he described. And the students I think were really interesting because I think a lot of them had never heard of this kind of a job before as a science advisor for a for a regular TV series. And he was he was delightful. He was just absolutely wonderful. He entertained their questions and, and even though despite the time difference, I feel a little bad because this was a morning class and I'm in the Eastern time where he's in Pacific. So it was a very early Skype visit from him, but he was very gracious to do that. Um, Garrett was not actually there for the same class. So Garrett uh, Garrett Wong came for a spring break class I teach. Uh, that one's co-taught with my colleague who I mentioned before, Professor Eric Spana. So that is called the Biology of Popular Science Fiction TV and Movies. Since it's a spring break class, it's basically 8 a.m. to you know 9 p.m., though including meals and fun activities, Monday through Thursday of spring break week. So it's very, very intense. A lot of it is much more project-oriented, where we have students do like individual projects on whatever is their favorite fandom. Of course, for me, that would always be Star Trek. But I mean, for a lot of the other students, it wasn't necessarily. But what we did in that case is we opened it up by watching an episode of Star Trek Voyager called Favorite Son. That one has a lot of genetics, and that's very much in my area of specialty. So we watched that episode all together. And then I gave them a series, uh, or I gave them a short lecture, just going over some pieces from it. And then I give them some problems. You know, like, you know, so this was depicted this way. What do you think is right about this? What do you think is wrong? How would you fix it? What could this possibly mean? And then the very last problem, I should note at this point, the students didn't know there was a special guest yet. Mm. <laughs> the very last problem on the sheet that everybody got is if you were to talk to one of the actors who was in this series. Oh, my goodness. What might you ask them? So Garrett actually quietly slipped into the back of the room and sat there as they were working on. <laughs> and this That's episode, fantastic. This episode focused on him too. So when we got to that last one, a few people raised some things. I said, "Well, why don't we ask him? He's right there." <laughs> That's great. Oh my goodness, it was epic! Hilarious. That's epic. Yeah, and I feel like. I've seen Garrett at conventions as well, and I'm always very impressed with how much Star Trek knowledge he has, um, you know, because a lot of the actors don't really like watching themselves again, yeah. and they may not be super big fans of the show, but Garrett is really down for, like, watching an episode of Voyager, oh, yeah. and yeah, oh, yeah, it's great that he visited. He knows all the series, too, not just Voyager. He's watched every one of them. He knows the episodes. He knows the names. He's truly a Star Trek fan, as well as being, you know, part of the, of the series as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we also, our, our last guest that we had was uh, for the regular class was uh, Jane Brooke from Discovery, who plays Admiral Cornwell there. Oh, in her, nice. In her case, we were able to get her in part because she is a Duke alumna, and we're at Duke University. So basically, I contacted the Alumni Association and said, I'm willing to do this. And she said, I would love to come back to Duke. I haven't been there for many years. So we were very fortunate to bring her here. <laughs> very cool. 
All right. So, so you're a professor and, uh -huh. you know, I'm a postdoc, so I can only imagine how much work being a professor is. I mean, I'm already like up to my neck in, in, in stuff that's keeping me super busy. And I can you know, imagine that you are, you know, constantly being pulled by your cutting edge research program and the students that you advised and, and, and all the committees that you serve on, writing proposals, peer reviewing papers, yep. traveling to meetings. And yet you choose to spend part of your time developing and teaching this science of Star Trek course. So, so I imagine it must be super gratifying to do that. And I'm, I'm just wondering, yes. what do you think is the most gratifying aspect of teaching this particular course? For me, for all my teaching, the most gratifying aspect is always the interactions with the students. I mean, the, the people who come to our university, and I'm sure this is, everybody feels this at every university, but the students are phenomenal. They're so thoughtful and they're so energetic and they're they're excited about the topic, especially for this particular class. This wasn't a required class. This was just a freshman seminar. They could have signed up for any of many other seminars. So they signed up for this you know, because they had some interest in this topic, or at the very least because they needed a natural science credit and it, <laughs> it provided that. Mm -hmm. But the interactions with them were wonderful. Just the way they engaged with everything, the way they showed their own creativity in, in answering the problems. It was just absolutely delightful working with them, like start to finish. There wasn't a bad moment at all. <laughs> I was actually just talking to my wife about this last night, that looking at the final projects the students did, there wasn't a single bad one at all. <laughs> I mean, they were all, like it ranged from good to outstanding. <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah, that's a good good reflection of you know how engaging your class was. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Okay, so let's uh, transition to your book, which sure. I, I have here in front of me, and I, which I um, really enjoyed reading good. over the past week. Um, and so the first thing that struck me about your book was that wow, this guy really knows his Star Trek. I mean, you've got <laughs> all these examples in every single chapter, but not only do you have examples from every single Star Trek series, from the original series through Discovery, you also have like all these footnotes for the examples that you couldn't fit into the main text. So like on page four, you have a footnote that says, prions are associated with various human and other mammalian diseases and reference was made in Deep Space Nine episode, Business as Usual, to leveraging prions as a weapon to kill 20 million people. And I'm just like, who remembers that about prions? <laughs> I can tell you why that's the case. So what I did, I Anticipated that you know, I, I know the science very well, but I did not know going in the Star Trek that well. I had seen, of course, all the episodes, but I didn't have it just down like that. So what I did is, as the project was beginning, I basically went through every single episode of every single series, and I had this big spreadsheet. Either I'd watch the episode or I'd read through the script. You know, one of the one or the other. Every night I'd do two or three of them. I usually I'd go through two scripts and then watch one episode. Go through two scripts, watch one episode, and I had the spreadsheet and had different columns to set associated with each chapter and said, okay, here's a point that's relevant for this chapter, here's a point that's relevant for this chapter, and put it in there. A lot of them had nothing for any of them, because I mean, you know, yeah, it's a science fiction thing. It doesn't, it doesn't have to have that much biology. Right. But that was the way I assembled it all. And then when I came to writing, it was much easier, because I could say, okay, I'm doing this, I can just look at the column and see, like, oh, what are the episodes that are relevant, what are the pieces that go with which section of each chapter then? So... So that explains figure six, which is uh, this graph with ah. the different Star Trek episodes in the year that they finished on the x-axis and on the y-axis is the fraction of episodes in each of those series that mention either DNA, genetic, or genome, those those yeah. three different words. And you can see there's this basically monotonic increase as you go further in time. Uh, I just loved this figure. And I, you know, I had, I have 
uh, admit that when I looked at it, I was so astonished because I'm like, that means he went through every single episode and counted. <laughs> <laughs> actually, that one I didn't. That one I actually uploaded all the scripts to the server and did a grep command. <laughs> ah, okay. Yeah. Yep, yep. You're, you're a smart guy. <laughs> um, but this is amazing. So I, I feel like, you know, so at, in, in the original series, there's basically zero episodes, you know, maybe a few percent of the episodes that mention these terms and then by the time you get to enterprise more than a quarter of all episodes in enterprise mention the word genetic which is absolutely yeah. astounding and so yeah. do you want to talk about like the timing of star trek and oh, yeah. this revolution of molecular genetics that you can actually just see in this data set oh yeah absolutely so if you go back to the 1960s we hadn't really sequenced dna yet <laughs> i mean so there I mean, people knew, of course, the DNA was a hereditary material. We've known that since the 1940s, but you know, it was not something that was accessible. It wasn't something that was that was heavily discussed in the in the broader literature or in the public sphere. When you get to say the 1990s, that's when the Human Genome Project was going in earnest. You know, people were using DNA sequencing in all sorts of different organisms, whether plants, animals, fungi, microbes, whatever. So that was going in earnest. The first human genome was published. What was it? Something like 2001. I think that, that's about the time for it. So that was just as Voyager was ending. So you can see that jump then in terms of genome there between Deep Space Nine and Enterprise. It goes from zero up to a little over 10% of episodes are mentioning genomes in, in Enterprise. And that's consistent with that idea for what's going on with the human genome, as well as, of course, other, other genomes. I work in Drosophila for my research, the fruit fly. And, you know, the first Drosophila genome was published, I think, in the year 2000. So again, it, it's consistent with that timing. It, 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 Star Trek has always been very good about following what's going on in the scientific literature. And you see that even continuing with, with Star Trek Discovery now. There is discussion of horizontal gene transfer in the mm -hmm. first season of Star mm -hmm. Trek Discovery. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love that because, you know, art in whatever form it is, is always some kind of reflection of the society that makes it. And Star Trek being science fiction is a very special kind of art. It also reflects the science that is known at the time. And, um, and so this plot just so clearly shows that aspect of Star Trek. And I love this. I love the science writers try to engage with science. Like they actually try to explain things instead of just invoking, oh, that was the force or whatever, or something. <laughs> just, <laughs> just for example. Right. <laughs> sometimes that, that can go awry because sometimes they try to explain something which is absolutely impossible <laughs> or they explain it wrong. But I still appreciate the effort, even if, it, even if it goes awry or even if it's wrong, I still appreciate that they tried to explain it using your actual science. So at the beginning of your book, you spend a chapter basically describing what life is and the limits yep. of life and uh, trying to discuss what the definition of life is. And so I'm wondering, what is your personal definition of life? And does Star Trek challenge that definition in some way or does Star Trek inform that definition for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I think I agree with the textbooks, which I mean... This idea that you have to have some way of acquiring energy, you have to have some sort of organization, you have to have you know, some sort of reproduction, response to stimuli, and ability to adapt. I, I, I agree with those things, but it's, the tricky thing about defining life is you can always find exceptions for any of those individual elements, right? You can say, oh, hey, but, you know, if, if something is sterile, does that mean it's not alive? I mean, obviously mules are alive, but they're sterile. <laughs> so it, it's tough in that sense you know, what exactly should constitute life. Um, I've been reading more astrobiology since writing the book. Actually, there's a lot of things I would have worked into the book if I was to rewrite it now, even though it's only a year later since, <laughs> since it's been published. But I've been seeing a lot of things on that, which, which are 
basically looking at more statistical approaches for defining life in terms of complexity and things like that and the range of a complexity that you expect from something that's alive versus not. This is work by Leroy Cronin from Glasgow University. I think it's, it's fascinating. That, of course, you know, that didn't make it into the book. And obviously, they didn't go into Star Trek because that's, <laughs> that's very high-level science sort of stuff. Um, mm. Your question about Star Trek is a good one, though. I mean, they certainly bring this up, especially in the context of, say, for Voyager, the holographic doctor, for Next Generation, for Data. Are these individuals actually alive? I mean, it's tough. I mean, this, this brings up the question of can we create life? And if you have sort of a spiritual view, you'd probably argue no. Whereas if you have just a like, you know, this is something that can self-replicate and has organization. Sure. I mean, we probably already have the ability to make something that, that does just about all those things. And you know, if, if we can't right now, we will be able to very, very soon. I tend to go a little bit more with the latter myself. I mean, I feel like, you know, hey, if, if it can produce more of itself and adapt, I'm happy calling it alive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that as, as an astrobiologist, thinking along the lines of those agnostic sort of more general yeah, biosignatures and, and more general descriptions of what life is, is really going to help us out because when yeah. we go out there, we you know, may find that life resembles us, but it may not as well. And so yeah. when we look for life, we'll we'll need to look for something, like you said, that is in a range of complexity that shouldn't arise without yeah. life. The nice thing with complexity, too, is the characteristic is it doesn't rely on seeing something in a certain amount of time. Because one of the things, I bring this up briefly in the book, but it's something I've thought about a lot, that let's say, for example, that there's something that's alive and it's on Neptune, but it's just, it's doing these processes that we describe as life processes, but it's doing them, you know, on like a glacial scale. That doesn't mean it's not alive. I mean, right, <laughs> it's just operating right. on something on much, 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 much slower scale that, you know, maybe we can't detect it even in our whole lifetime that it's happening. But if you do it based on complexity, you'd be able to actually still see it and know that it's there. So I like that aspect to it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. In your book, you talk about the evolutionary relationships, the connectivity of life and the the trees of life on Earth. So real briefly, could you summarize the evidence for how we know that all of life on Earth is related to each other? Sure. There's a lot of things that go with this. I mean, at a basic level, if you think about, you know, we're all water-based, carbon-based, you know, all organisms on Earth use DNA or RNA, actually pretty much DNA is about it, for the genetic code. What I think is pretty fascinating is that we use just about exactly the same genetic code. I mean, it's really, really close. Like, if you look at the the code for, you know, methionine, it's it's, it's exactly the same in, in nearly all species and almost the same in actually all species. So that, to me, is, is a striking coincidence. There's no particular reason why the particular three-letter DNA code that you see in DNA should be associated with a particular amino acid. So the fact that that's conserved across all life at, at such a very close degree, to me, it makes it infinitesimally likely that there, there's multiple origins. It must be that we're all related. Um, beyond that, of course, there's a lot of simple principles. Like we see things in the fossil record, and we see a lot of these intermediate forms. People who are anti-evolution talk about uh, you know, missing links and things like that, but that's just not true. <laughs> I mean, we see we see lots and lots of intermediate forms, and there's never an expectation of seeing every possible intermediate for everything. The fact that we see the amount of intermediates that we see is already super impressive and at or above what you would expect to actually be able to find. Yeah. The other thing, which, again, I find striking is just that correspondence between what you see in terms of similarity at the DNA sequence level and physical similarity. I mean, that to me is also, I find that very striking. You know, if, if every organism just popped or into existence without having a relationship. Why should our DNA sequence be so much more similar to a chimpanzee's than to, you know, a pigeon? (laughs) 
Right, so. right. Well, so Star Trek takes this idea of evolutionary relationships and, and trees of life yeah. to sort of the next level. And yep. so Star Trek gives us an explanation for how all of life on Earth could be related to the life forms on numerous other planets throughout yeah. the galaxy. And I'm specifically thinking of the Next Generation episode, The Chase. Yep. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and so uh, you talk about this in, in the book and you outline a few reasons why this kind of relationship humans being related to Vulcans, Klingons, Cardassians, Romulans, etc., would probably be very unlikely. So, yeah, uh, so right. why do you find that the case? The way the hypothesis was laid out in the chase, there's an ancient alien race. Let's call them the Preservers, but I'm not sure if that's what their name is. The Preservers is actually the one that's from a different episode from the original series. But let's just call these ancient alien races the Preservers. That they seeded all these different planets something like four billion years ago. So in principle, yeah, life on Earth, as far as we know, it goes back about four billion years. So the timing for that seems good. However, what that means, you know, given the timing of evolution of different forms on Earth, that means four billion years later, we have these forms, like, say, let's compare us, the humans, to, say, Elorians, like Guinan in, in Next Generation. We look exactly the same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of similar. We look absolutely exactly the same. Four billion years later. That's incredibly improbable that that would happen because that basically rules out any possibility of chance events and we know that chance events have had a major role in evolution of life on earth you know one example being that that first acquisition of the mitochondria which is an organelle within the cells i mean that happened about two billion years ago here on earth that caused you know the radiation of animals plants and fungi from other microbes you know, did that happen on Vulcan and Kronos and, and Romulus and all these other places? I mean, no way. <laughs> like, right. It would have happened exactly the same way at exactly the same time, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing, too, is, I mean, just in principle, we are more closely related to grass than we are to Vulcans. And yet mm -hmm. we somehow can breed with Vulcans and make these healthy hybrids. <laughs> right. Again, no way. You don't see anybody breeding with grass. <laughs> no, exactly. <Yeah. laughs> or, or like, you know, when we have pollen coming into us, we don't get pregnant. <laughs> yeah. So the premise of the episode was that these preservers sprinkled, I guess, genetic material into the primordial soups of all of these very young worlds, and that somehow this initial genetic material stayed intact and then through evolutionary time dictated the sort of large-scale morphological forms of animals on on those worlds such that they all look roughly humanoid yeah. and you do a really cool um little calculation in your yep. book about <laughs> mutations and how over a long period of time that initial dna seeding should have been completely wiped out by natural mutations i thought yeah, that was really cool Thank you. I did have some assumptions in that calculation, but yeah, there, there's basically no way. And not only would it have the, the blueprints for all that, but it also have the blueprint for the little video that they watched that they <laughs> obtained from those DNA sequences. <laughs> yeah. So while evolution, as you say, is, is very based on chance events and causes living forms to diverge and results in an astonishing array of diversity of life on our world, you also discuss later on in the book the very real phenomenon of convergence evolution, That's which right. causes similar features to evolve in completely different lineages. Yep. And certain examples that I can think of off the top of my head are like the ability to see light. I think that evolved multiple different times yep. in Earth's history. And then you talk about, um, you know, wings for flying. Uh, yep. That happened to mammals and made bats and it happened to reptiles and made birds. Yep. Uh, fins for swimming in the water. You, you talk about whales and yep. sharks. They look basically the same. So I'm wondering, you know, there's that push and pull between diversification 
adaptation, but then also finding what is essentially an ideal solution to evolutionary challenges. This is probably a very speculative question, but what can we expect from living beings in other worlds um, if we have another Earth-like planet, do you think that convergent evolution would mold organisms into similar forms, or is that is that something that we shouldn't really expect? So that's a great question. So what happens with convergent evolution is natural selection favors you know a similar form, but it's it's not necessarily like a similar form in all respects. It's just with respect to you know whatever the pressure is that's that's happening. So for example, using the case of you mentioned uh, whales and sharks and things like that. I mean, yes, they all have fins, but if you look at them, they don't really look that similar. I mean, there's a lot of differences, not just in the fins themselves, but just in the overall organisms. They're not. I mean, one is cold-blooded, one is warm-blooded, one nurses its young, one doesn't. So. The aspect of the environment, which got them to be similar, is that they're, that you know they're adapting to an aquatic environment. So the ability to have this sort of tube-like structure in terms of just basically their overall body shape, so they could swim through the water and having fins, that was selected. But all the rest was not. So we might expect, let's say, for example, there are other plants that are like Earth, though it's very hard to say that because if you're saying plants are, are like Earth, you're assuming not just the abiotic environment, like the overall temperature and rocks and things like that, but also you're assuming the biotic environment that there are trees and grass and shrubs and things like that there. So basically, it, it moves everything back a step in terms of figuring it out. I think there could be some elements that would be similar. I think some aspects of form that would be similar between, say, something that evolved on Earth and something that evolved someplace else. But... The likelihood of getting trees that look the same and grass that looks the same and humanoid forms and insects and everything all in that same place, it's infinitesimally unlikely. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think the similarities would be just very general. Like things like the examples you raised in the context of, you know, some way of detecting light, you know. <laughs> yeah. And that may have a similar sort of overall shape. They may have something akin to eyes, but you know, as you get more into the the specifics, nah. Not at all. <laughs> so you already mentioned that on a scientific level, it's a bit odd that humans and Vulcans can successfully interbreed and produce viable offspring. Mm -hmm. um, I just chalk that up to the fact that in Star Trek, we want our characters to have the option of having romantic relationships with each yeah. other for storytelling oh, purposes. But there are examples of interspecies breeding here on Earth. And That's you right. bring up some really interesting examples in, in your book. I was wondering if you have any quick comments on that, that you know, maybe doesn't make, I mean, it is really weird that humans and Vulcans can, can <laughs> interbreed, but like there is, I guess, some kind of precedent for inter yeah. interspecies breeding. So there is an out on the human Vulcan thing. Let's start with that and then we'll come back to the humanoids. The out would be that rather than saying that we share a common ancestor four billion years ago, that instead we share a common ancestor more like a couple of hundred thousand years ago. That makes it way more like because at that point we are more closely related to vulcans than we are to grass <laughs> by like a lot <laughs> yeah. and at that point we'd be closer related to more closely related to vulcans than we are to chimpanzees you know so that that makes it much more feasible for that to happen and that's consistent with one of the episodes from the original series paradise syndrome where this ancient race and that was the one where they actually had the preservers where they were picking up populations that were in danger of extinction and using them to seed other worlds so in that case they'd gone to this planet they saw these native americans there that was a little weird <laughs> but on that plant there was you know i think they had like trees and grass and stuff like that if those were actually trees and grass taken from earth 100,000 years ago sure that's fine. And yeah, there might be some continued change that happens over those couple hundred thousand years. So maybe it wouldn't be identical. Maybe on one planet, the humanoids evolve pointy ears and maybe not in the other. So that makes that more feasible. So coming back to what happens on Earth, 
like you said, there is precedent for humanoid interbreeding that, you know, most of us have some Neanderthal ancestors and Neanderthal is a different species. You know, I've done the 23andMe thing where it actually calculates your Neanderthal fraction. And I think I'm like 1.9% of my genes are Neanderthals. Mm. <laughs> if you have European descent, it's much more than that. There's also the Denisovans. I mean, the, that's another humanoid species that especially people from some of the Pacific Islands have a fairly high fraction, sometimes up to 5% of Denisovan ancestry. So yeah, that has happened here on Earth in the past 100,000 years. And, and conceivably, it might still be able to, no pun intended with the word conceivably. <laughs> conceivably, that could even happen today if there were still Neanderthals in Denisovan. But since they've gone extinct, we can't actually see that. So that would be consistent with this idea of, say, humans and you know Romulans or Vulcans or whatever interbreeding. Now, Vulcans do pose a couple of extra problems in the sense of the whole different kind of blood that's not iron-based <laughs> and have copper-based blood instead. So there's a couple of other challenges there with the Vulcans in particular. <laughs> right. So I think this might just be an anecdote or, or something that never really actually happened. But I think somebody told me once that a Star Trek producer, I'm not exactly sure who, was asked, why are there so many humanoid aliens on Star Trek? And the producer said, well give me a non-humanoid actor and I'll give you a non-humanoid alien. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but, you know, there have been the occasional cool non-humanoid alien species on Star Trek and it's increasing in occurrence now that we have great computer graphic technology. Yep. And so I was just wondering, do you have a favorite sort of non-humanoid species on Star Trek that evolves yes. in completely different circumstances that, that you want to talk about? I love the Tholians. I think they're fantastic. <laughs> so these are these big sort of crystalline kind of entities, and they're, they might be silicon-based, we don't really know, but their temperature of comfort is much, much higher temperature than us, which I think that's also kind of interesting that most of the aliens that you tend to see in Star Trek, either they live in space or they live in human comfortable conditions. And it's one of those two things. Tholians is one of the few exceptions that they actually need a much, much higher temperature than we do. I, I, I think they're fantastic. They're very interesting. They have you know, a completely different sort of communication that shows a lot of creativity. I really like it. And it was elaborate. I mean, we saw them briefly in the original series, but it was elaborated nicely in Enterprise. Mm -hmm. And speaking of creativity, we have what is called the mycelial network on ah. Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> <laughs> Any thoughts on the mycelial network from an evolutionary biologist? So it's interesting that, like, again, I, I applaud them for trying. <laughs> so they're, they're thinking outside the box. There were clearly, I, I've joked that sometimes that I think the, the people who worked on those episodes were infected with mycophilia, some sort of love of fungi. But um, a lot of this comes from a TED Talk by Paul Stamets, the real world mycologist Paul Stamets. So he has this TED Talk about, uh, I think it's called something like Seven Ways uh, Fungi Can Save the World or something like that. But in that, he brings up this idea that, you know, fungal spores can get out into space. He talks about the same species that they actually talk about in Discovery Prototaxites. He talks about that genus in particular in there. And I know this directly influenced them because if you go back, I found a tweet from Brian Fuller, who was the original showrunner for um, Star Trek Discovery, advertising this talk of Paul Stamets. And this was way before Star Trek Discovery ever came out there, like many years earlier. So clearly he, he was already into this idea at that point in time. Uh, there's a lot of problems <laughs> with it. Again, it's cool to think that, yeah, fungal spores can get onto space. Yeah, that part is okay. But this mycelial network, like what? I mean, when you say network, it assumes there's actually a direct connection there. Mm -hmm. So if there was a web of mycelia, like we'd be able to see it. <laughs> like, right. Well, I guess it's a, it's a subspace network that, or it travels through. Out, exactly. So yeah, it's, always, but it's, still, yeah. it's never really explained how that lets individuals move from one place. <laughs> the other thing right. too is you say it's everywhere in the universe. 
the universe is a really, really big place. <laughs> now, again, I don't know the relationship between subspace and space. That's something that my physics colleague, Aaron McDonald, who also speaks on Star Trek all the time in, in the physics context, should be able to answer that better than me. But I don't quite understand how you could have something that being everywhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> we'll leave that aspect of the mycelial network for Aaron to explain. But they, they do talk about this concept of panspermia. And I think that Stamets actually does use that word in yep. a Star Trek Discovery episode. He yep. says that the mycelia are, are the progenitors of panspermia throughout uh, the cosmos. And, and that always struck me as a little bit weird because fungi are like a highly evolved type exactly. of form on Earth there, you know. So, so does that mean everything came from Earth? Because certainly the mycelium couldn't have been the origin of life on Earth. Yeah, that was an odd thing. I, I mean, I can understand how, yes, spores would be the progenitors of panspermia, but fungal spores, like you said, I mean, fungi already have mitochondria and things like that. They're, they're fairly, you know, yeah, they're fairly complex already. So, mm -hmm. I mean, at that point, then where did all the bacteria come from? Right, exactly. <laughs> it's true the bacteria didn't come from fungi. That would be very strange. Yeah. yeah. All right. So as I was reading your book, I gave myself the assignment and the challenge of trying to come up with an idea that would be my final project if I were taking your class. Oh, and so I want, to, I want to pitch my idea for a Star Trek episode using real life biological concepts. And I want you to tell me what you think about it. <laughs> okay. Okay. okay, I love this. Before I dive into my pitch, let us just take a moment and reflect on how awesome this assignment is. All right, second, let me do a quick rundown of biological terms that I use in my pitch. The main thing that you'll want in your intellectual arsenal is knowing the difference between prokaryotes and eukaryotes. Prokaryotes are simple, single-celled life forms. Here on Earth, we have two flavors of them, called bacteria and archaea, but never mind the subtle differences between the two. If you listened to episode 64 of Strange New Worlds, The Worst Best Hug, you'll remember that, once upon a time, an archaean engulfed a bacterium. And instead of getting digested as food, that bacterium survived had its genome stripped down to a bare minimum, and lived forevermore as an endosymbiont, deriving protection from its host cell in which it's made its cozy home, and providing that cell with energy in the form of ATP. That little bacterium lives on through its progeny, which include the mitochondria in your cells. Furthermore, this endosymbiotic event we call eukaryogenesis, the birth of complex cell forms on Earth. The eukaryotes, which include you and me. Okay, if you've got all that, let's go back to the pitch. Okay, so here's my here's my uh, final project pitch, and it has to do with actually stuff that we've talked about already about this endosymbiotic event that uh, produced more complex cell forms. What initially created what are called mitochondria in in what we call eukaryotic cells was a, right, a prokaryote engulfing another one and basically enslaving it for its energetic needs, right? And so that was a singular event in Earth history, as as far as we know, and that has produced all of the like multicellular life forms, trees, animals, us, fungi as well. But 
imagine that that never happened on a world and oh. and and that uh, you just have simple bacteria or archaea evolving on, on that world and i've 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 learned through some of my personal astrobiology reading that bacteria never exist alone they always yeah. ex exist in consortia and yeah. these bacterial communities often exhibit some rudimentary form of differentiation there could be some bacteria doing some job for the consortia some bacteria doing a different job and they're sort of interacting with each other and and supporting one another and yeah. so if eukaryotes never emerged on a planet and you play the evolutionary tape for billions and billions of yeah, years, could you get multicellular complex life made up of consortia of simple cells like bacteria? That's a, that's a great question. So I guess one question I would ask from that right off the bat is, we still have single cell forms here that don't have mitochondria. Why didn't that happen anyway? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, do, do the eukaryotes eat them? <laughs> Maybe, yeah, that, that's, I guess, that they can't compete with uh, the eukaryotic forms that uh, yeah. emerged. But anyway, so in the Star Trek episode, our, our crew encounters multicellular prokaryotic organisms oh. that, in my mind, look like blobs, but they're basically, they have all the, the same functions and can do basically what any humanoid species can do. They're just, instead of made of many eukaryotic cells, they're made of many prokaryotic cells. And initially, wow. they're very nice to us and they they even realize that we are a lot like them because we have a bunch of endosymbionts in our guts you know that we yep. work with to, oh, to yeah. produce food for ourselves and so they're, they're really nice to us until they do a deeper scan and they realize that we have mitochondria and each of our cells there are these enslaved um prokaryotic <laughs> organisms and they freak out and they start attacking us and they're like we must free our mitochondrial cousins free the mitochondria, free the mitochondria. and um, and so i guess that's the scientific premise of the episode but you know star trek is always best when it is blending science and morality and ethics Absolutely. and i think that um this this would be a really interesting concept to explore the, the concept of privilege, um, yeah. because privilege is often something that uh, it comes from like history and from a societal context that is much larger than the individual. And so it, sometimes it's, it's hard for an individual to fully realize maybe the privilege that they have when they're young. But as you know, you learn more history about the way that certain, you know, nation states uh, ruled the world and certain types of people were favored by socioeconomic systems. And you start to realize, oh, wait, you know, I may have actually a lot of, of this privilege that was completely, you know, it's completely out of my control. It's set in history. And so maybe our eukaryotic cells is like the ultimate form of privilege that a long time ago some archaean engulfed the bacterium and mm -hmm. enslaved it and and we are the product of all that you know we can't we can't control exactly who we are and yet we must acknowledge that oh we we are very privileged beings and that we have these like mitochondria that have stripped genomes and that their only job is now to do ATP creation for ourselves. And when we see these multicellular prokaryotic beings, we have to understand the way that they see us as basically, you know, like slave masters for, for their simpler cousins. And uh, obviously it's a half-baked idea. That's something that I just came up with in the last week. But, you know, uh, just wondering what your thoughts might be on that. So the one interesting part to the part that got me as you were saying that is I kept on thinking like, well, how much are they slaves now? Mm. Um, but it's true. Like you can't, I mean, we could free the mitochondria, but like, they're not going to, they're not going to survive. <laughs> it's, not, it's not like a free mitochondria would just go on and reproduce and, and make more mitochondria. That would never happen because 
I mean, to some extent, they're reliant upon each other, right? Mm. The, the mitochondria also rely upon the, the eukaryotic cell host. I mean, at this point, I mean, probably initially they could have gotten away with it, but now they can't. I mean, the whole mitochondrial genome in most animals is something like 16,000 bases. You know, that's an incredibly small genome. There's no way it has the code in there to build another mitochondria. Mm. So, yeah, it's, that's an interesting concept. But that, that's the piece that was getting me. Because I kept on thinking, like, well, are they slaves? I mean, that would yeah. probably be the argument that Picard or whoever would be using <laughs> trying to get out of there. It's like, they're not slaves. You know, they're now symbiotic. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a really good point. In my concept for these multicellular prokaryotes, um, you know, as I was reading your chapter about sex and reproduction and, and realizing, uh -huh. oh, wow, there's like so many different ways for a species to pass on its genes, pass on its information. How would a large, complex, intelligent consortia of microbes basically reproduce? And I, I was thinking they would all just do horizontal gene transfer. They would like... Yeah sort of like touch each other and then like pass their genes or yeah. like touch a pool of genes. Yeah. And so with that concept in there, I think that they would see yeah. the mitochondria yeah. as slaves that are worth saving because they could then inject some some of their genes into the mitochondria and perhaps yeah. enhance the mitochondria back into fully living independent cell form. So that was that was the scientific perspective of of my fictional Okay. okay. I like yeah. it. I like it. Well, <laughs> it would be interesting they'd have to insert I mean the amount they'd have to insert for it to sure. become self-sustaining would be like 95% more. <laughs> yeah. Have to like re rewrite their uh they wouldn't be mitochondria anymore. They would be not No, exactly. It'd be something that has a little bit of mitochondrial genes in it, but that'd be about it. <laughs> Right. So maybe that could be the argument of the Starfleet crew. You know, yeah. like you said, Picard would say, oh, well, you may be freeing them, but in order to free them, you would need to fundamentally change who they are. And who are you to say that you should do yeah. that and wipe us all out in the process? Yeah, yeah exactly. No, it's true. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, okay. actually, in terms of this genome size, too. I mentioned the mitochondrial genome is something like 16,000 bases in, um, in most animals. There is a species of fruit fly. It's... Um, I think it's Drosophila yacuba. I can't remember which one. But anyway, the entire mitochondrial genome was actually taken into the nuclear genome at some point in time. So if you sequence the 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 nuclear genome there, it has the full mitochondrial sequence in there. So <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. Just yeah. hopped on yeah. over. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a horizontal gene transfer in a different sort of way. I mean, it's it's within the same organism, but different parts of it there. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, but I, I like your, I like the model though. That, that sounds really creative. <laughs> huh, thanks. I just wanted to ask you if sure. um, you want to talk about your own research that you do in your lab. And you said you studied fruit flies. So I, I, I normally think of fruit flies as a nuisance. So yep. how, how can we learn interesting things from fruit, fruit flies? <laughs> well, so that actually comes back to the, the discussion we had earlier. I mean, fruit flies, because they are animals, because they are related to us, we share like, you know, most of our genes with them. So, you know, a lot of Nobel Prizes are associated with discoveries that were made in fruit flies. My research isn't particularly medical at all, which most of those tended to be sort of on the medical side. My research is more on the evolutionary side. I'm very interested in what are the genetic changes it takes to make new species? Like how much do you have to change? What are the specific changes? How do they interact with each other? Basically, what does it take to make one species split into two at the genetic level? And rather than creating species in the lab, what we do is we look at very, very, very closely related species of fruit flies. So the equivalent of sort of human Neanderthal, for example, but using, in our case, say Drosophila pseudobscura and Drosophila persimilis. Those are two fruit fly species. 
They do hybridize in nature, not, not very much. Uh, there seems to be some gene flow between them. The hybrid males are sterile. The hybrid females are fertile. So there's a conduit there for actually seeing what's going on. So we've done a lot of you know, genetic tests with them, trying to figure out like, you know, how much does it take to have, say, hybrid sterility or the mate preference or any of these traits that are associated with being different species. That's, what, that's at least one of our research programs. We have a whole bunch of others also. We've seen the flies, too. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. It's really fun. So I've never visited a fruit fly lab, but um, I mean, how many flies do you have? I imagine <laughs> to, to, to study these changes on, on genetic levels, you have to have a lot of flies. So do you have just like yep. a giant room of, of fruit flies? Yep, they're just loose. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no we have these small food-containing vials that are maybe like maybe the size of like four times the size of your thumb, and they have a little bit of uh, food, and it's a glass vial, and it's got a little cotton plug at the top to keep them in. And so we, ha you know, each of those might have say yeah, 20, 25 flies, and say you know in the room while we're studying, there's probably many thousands of those vials <laughs> at any point in time. <laughs> so, so, I mean, to some extent, I've committed mass murder of these fruit flies because, of course, we use them, and then when we're done with them, we kill them. We don't just release them all into the wild because there'd be a crazy number of flies being released if we were doing that. But they've been very useful for helping understand these processes, and people don't seem to mind that we use them and they get rid of them <laughs> at the end. <laughs> very good. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Strange New Worlds, and thank you again for writing such an amazing book. I think I've been inspired to maybe try to write a science of Star Trek book myself down the road. And, and if that ever happens, I'll, I'll credit you for that inspiration. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Thank you for having such a great podcast, too. That concludes episode 72 of Strange New Worlds. What a lovely, nerdy time that I had with Professor Mohammed Noor. I love how you could just tell in his voice how excited he was to talk about science, Star Trek, and the intersection between the two. I almost want to go back to college just so that I can take his class. Almost. I'm not that crazy. But I had a fantastic time reading his book and pretending that I was in his class. And you will too. You can get Live Long and Evolve anywhere where books are sold. Actually, I don't know if that's true, it just sounded good, but in all seriousness, there's an Amazon link in the show notes that'll take you one click away from becoming a proud owner of a book that uses Star Trek to probe some of the coolest aspects of biological science. Why not make it so? And would you like me to address you as Professor Noor or Mohammed or whatever you like? I really Captain like Captain Noor? <laughs> Not that one. <laughs> Not that one. <laughs> Just checking. <laughs>